Hi, my name is Michelle Fiordaliso. I'm the co-host of The One Is Now. Today, we'll be speaking with Alicia Wiesel, who is a recovering Wall Street executive who raised millions of dollars for New York's neediest by convening hundreds of finance professionals to stay up all night solving elaborate puzzles on the city streets. Since retiring from a 25-year financial markets career at Goldman Sachs at the end of 2019, he served as the technology lead for digital marketing in the Mike Bloomberg presidential campaign. He's now using his time in quarantine to learn Metallica songs on guitar from his son and to learn TikTok dances from his daughter and also to organize his father, Ellie Wiesel's archives. He learns a little Talmud every day, and he also obeys his wife and mother. When his father passed, he realized many others missed his voice and so speaks from time to time about his father's legacy and message when the right opportunities arise for impact. Hi, Alicia. Hi, Michelle. What I didn't mention is that we are we are 25-year friends in your intro. And uh, we met under very interesting conditions. And I thought that um, you could talk a little bit about that. Well, one of my... Uh close friends from high school days was getting married and we were obviously thrilled for her. I went to the wedding and was delighted and surprised to make a new friend, this young woman, Michelle, that I had never met before. And I was kind of like, hey, Karen, where have you been keeping her? Um, Michelle was interesting, interested, just alive. And it was so great to get to know you then. A few days later, we were skydiving in upstate New York together and beginning uh, what would be a friendship for the rest of our lives. What What is so interesting about that is a lot of what we talk about on The When Is Now is living in the present moment. And what was so interesting is uh, it was an Orthodox Jewish wedding, so it was on a Tuesday. Uh, and we were speaking, we were seated at the, the same table and you said that you had been skydiving and I said, oh, I'd really love to do that. And you said, how about tomorrow? And I said, well, I'm working tomorrow. And you said, well, then how about Thursday? And I didn't have anything on Thursday. And it was one of those moments when you have to decide, is this thing that you've been saying you want to do something you're actually going to do, or is it going to be something you talk about doing for the next 10 or 20 or forever years? And so I said, yes, let's go on Thursday. And we did. And, and that was a bit of an adventure for me, too. I was uh, at a point in my life where I was ready to say, boy, you know, if you ask a pretty girl if she wants to do something with you tomorrow and she says no, you just ask her for the day after. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that became your personal mantra. You know, it was uh, it was a great experience. I remember we would drive up to the ranch together. And I felt comfortable listening to like Sarah McLachlan with you, you know, and, and kind of mm-hmm. getting into it. It was that summer, whatever it was, sometime in the 90s. 1995 and Suzanne Vega. And Suzanne and, Vega. And you also indulged me in, um, I had just finished a two-year stint working on the AIDS unit of St. Vincent's Hospital. And uh, I think I imposed upon you a lot of uh, audio tapes, actual tapes, uh, that were about grieving and death and dying, which you very generously listened to. It was a real party, let me tell you. <laughs> and the other sort of surreal part was, um, I remember when we we actually met at the engagement party leading up to the wedding, and I remember having uh, a metaphysical conversation looking at the Verrazano Bridge 
in Staten Island about the notion that perhaps we choose our lives. So there was a book that I had read at the time called Many Lives, Many Masters, and it was about past lives. And in it, there was some suggestion that we actually have some volition over the life that we choose. And I, I didn't know who your father was. I didn't know that your father was Elie Wiesel. Everybody at the party did because they were nice Jewish girls. And I had gone to Catholic school where night was not required reading at the time. And, and they thought this was horrible that I would suggest this notion to you that perhaps we choose our lives given what your father had experienced. So I don't know if you remember or knew about that part of the story. I didn't know that part of the story of all the reactions that I remember having to many lives, many masters, linkage to the Holocaust was not one of them. So do you think it is possible that we could choose our own lives? In the sense of before we're reincarnated? Yes. Then you'd have to suppose that you were willing to entertain the notion that we might be reincarnated. Right. So you're asking me, if I were willing to entertain the notion of being reincarnated, how would I feel about the thought that there is some choice involved? Yes. I like that thought. It's an interesting one. It doesn't offend me. I mean, I, I, I think of it a little bit like why we would decide to, to skydive, or you did all this crazy ice rock climbing too, right? Yeah, but that's a little different than, you know, that, that's a commitment of an afternoon or maybe a season or, you know, maybe some chunk of your discretionary entertainment time for some part of your life, but that's very different than choosing an entire life. The stakes are a little different. But maybe in the great span of infinity, an entire life is like an afternoon. That's interesting. Yeah. But somehow, does that make the choosing of a life seem more casual than it is? Or does it make the choosing of how to spend every minute of our day seem more profound than it is? And maybe it's both. Maybe maybe it is a profound decision how we spend that next minute. And maybe it is a, a matter to feel somewhat lighthearted about, about how we spend our lifetime. And maybe it's helpful to have both those perspectives. I think it is both. It's kind of like isn't that the, there that story? Is it in the Talmud or where is it that says you should carry two pieces of po- uh, paper in your pocket? All right, you finish. Yeah, and in one of them, it's written that the uh, that the world was created for you, and then in the other, it's written that uh, you know you are nothing but dust, and uh, and you're supposed to have both those pieces of paper in your pockets at all times. What do you think of that statement? I think it's powerful. I think we've all met people who lack humility. And there's something very powerful about being humble. And yet we've also met people in our lives who don't seem to take advantage of what they have. And that too feels like something is missing. So it's one of those things maybe where when you meet people who seem to be struggling from a deficit in either of those areas, you realize how important it is to have both for the full lived human experience. Yeah, I think that's really beautiful. So, I mean, I, I know that when I learned that that statement or that lesson or, you know, that, that I'm constantly trying to find the middle point between the two of realizing that the universe was or the world was created for me and that I'm also dust at the same time. Carl Sagan liked to use to remind us that we are made of stardust, <laughs> right? This dust that we're made of comes from these lights up in the sky. And what does that mean then? I mean, I believe it. I think it's true. But then what? 
it's not a question of faith it's it's science like we are you know the 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 heavier elements that make up our bodies that make up our atmosphere these were all spit out of you know stars at some point in the in the star cycle so it's not so much a well I'm sure there are some people who would argue that, you know, cosmophysics is is up for debate because, you know, it's faith. But, you know, we've got pretty good evidence that this is the way star works and that elements get spread around um, the universe. Uh, I guess your question is, so what? <laughs> well, well, what what does that mean, I guess? I mean, I, I think I like taking that. Is it from the Talmud? Where does that thing about the two pieces of paper come from? I have to look it up. I thought it was more of a of a story. I don't think it's from the Talmud. I thought it was from a later midrash, but I could look it up. I like how you linked it to this notion that if we did in fact choose our lives that it can be both both of those things in the same way, which it can be uh that there's a casualness uh, about a life and there is also an irreplaceable inevitability and and necessity to a life too of course because we're we're part of a of a broader fabric as well right like what is a life without mm-hmm. being viewed in relation to all the other lives around us um i just looked it up it's rabbi the, the this source says it's rabbi simcha bunim of Peshicha. so it was a hasidic rabbi so that's where it came source. from yeah so we're talking something in the you know really the 17 or 1800s right there's so many things that I that I want to ask you. So I'm I'm gonna move on to well, what do you think that you got from skydiving? You did it a lot more than I did. And we got to we got to jump out of planes together. I got to hold on to your jumpsuit as we <laughs> plummeted towards the earth. Those spandex um, suits. You know, I still have my jumpsuit. <laughs> I, I have I mine too, and it's in the basement, and my mother keeps saying, What are you gonna do with that? And I, I actually thought of driving up to the ranch and handing it to some new skydiver. I loved it. Yours had little pink handles, I remember. Do you still jump? I haven't jumped in a while. I think my last jump was probably like in 2003. It sort of starts to seem irresponsible when you have kids. I I think that's right. But I got to tell you, it's still the sport I dream most about. I have skydiving dreams. So we had somebody on the show uh, who talked about the meaning of dreams. And I also have a lot of skydiving dreams. And I'm wondering what yours are like, because mine are always very specific. Interesting. I mean, mine have a story to them each time, but the story will be varied. Uh, but there's no question that that feeling of just hurling yourself out of the door of a plane into nothing is uh, its just one of the most amazing experiences that I think there is. I feel like if I hadn't done that in my life, I'd really be missing something. Um, and... Yeah, so I have all sorts of stories about the drop zone moved. I didn't get where I was supposed to get to. Different people. There's always a narrative of some sort. Um, but yeah, it's always, it's almost always a good dream. I don't think I have any scary or bad skydiving dreams. And what do you think? Since so many people have skydiving on their bucket list, what do you think you got from it? Like you just said that you were so glad that that you did that. And I know for me, it became a big metaphor in my life. What do you think it gave you having been a skydiver? I'll mention two things. The first was this moment of declaring that my fear of death was ultimately not as strong as my desire to get the most out of life. Those are sort of the two competing impulses. 
Am I so scared of death that I'm not going to get the most that I could possibly squeeze out of this existence? Or is my desire to truly experience every last drop of juice in this amazing lifetime we get going to say that, you know what, in the pursuit of that, it's worth taking a little risk. And that's the first. And I remember the first jump for me was a religious experience. It was, you know, this concept I, I still in my in my own mental map of my life, there's before the first skydive and there's after the first skydive. Um, there's just, it, it's a moment when you first jump out and you're just in the sky. There's this moment where the the internal monologue that we all have, for me at least, just completely stopped. And I feel like for the first time, maybe since a very young age, I was truly just being as my heart beat and every second passed and then the parachute opened. The second thing I'd talk about in terms of what I learned from skydiving is this concept of here's this activity that most people view as, oh, well, you did it or you didn't do it. And it's this very binary thing. And if you did it, you survived it. And that's awesome. But there was this entire culture on the other side of the first jump. There was this whole concept of you can jump out of a plane and do more than just survive. You can jump out of a plane and thrive. You can capture this dream that man has dreamt about since we first dreamed of flying your body. You can make minute little changes in the way you present your body to the wind and go forward, go backwards, go upside down, rotate, spin left, spin right, go fully upside down, this incredible freedom to finally fly. And for me, it was this lesson, I guess, that rather than looking at things of, well, am I going to do them or am I going to not do them, this concept of beyond that binary statement, there's a whole world of, of what it means to thrive at something and to actually get to the point where you can enjoy it in a very deep way. I think that's so beautifully said, and um, and and I agree with with all of that. I, I learned similar lessons, and I think that for me that translated into how I've lived my life. And I'm wondering if that if that lesson, that religious experience that you had of quieting the inner monologue of just being and of um, not just surviving, but thriving has translated into um, your career, into your relationship with your wife, into your relationship with friends and as a father or, or any other areas in your life? I mean, I feel like it's, it's infiltrated all of them. I, I find that as I live my life now and as I've lived it as a young adult and an older adult, this concept of doing something just to say I've done it, just to get it on the resume, just to put it on my life resume. Um, each one of these things has become doors that I discover I want to go deeper and deeper into. And I, I think I'm a naturally curious person. I think we all are. Curiosity, I think, is one of those defining characteristics that define our species. And when I made the decision to get married... I will confess, it was a terrifying decision for me. The thought of giving up all of the choices of everyone else in the world that I might spend my life with or all of the ways I could spend my time if I was not going to be um, as part of a couple. But of course, I took that jump. I love my wife. And beyond it were 
new fields to explore that I had never even dreamed possible. The act of having children, of raising children, of being taught by your children, uh, of becoming who you are in relation to your children. I, I could never have imagined any of these things in the same way that I could never have imagined that on the other side of doing a skydive once is this whole unbelievable culture of creative people and this whole concept that one can fly one's body and conquer a dream. I don't think I really had understood as profoundly what it meant to to have a family. Um, so that's another example. 25 years at Goldman Sachs, I you know reluctantly you know went into a role because I felt it was the right thing to do, an opportunity I, I had to at least look behind the door. And it ended up being one of the most satisfying experiences of my life, but not just intellectually or financially, but in terms of working with people in incredibly deep ways and, and getting to solve problems of scope and complexity. I never dreamed I'd have any role to play in those things ever. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm a big, I think I've become a big believer in you know, jumping in and going deep and seeing where life takes you. I love that. And you said something uh, that I think is so important and that I, I feel I learned too late in life, which is that is being taught by your children. Somebody said to me once, our children are here to teach us. We're not here to teach them. We're here to make sure that they know how to keep themselves alive until they, you know, we're here to keep them alive until they know how to do that. And we're here to love them. But evolution goes forward, and so they're here to teach us. And so, what do you think your kids are here to teach you? What What have they been teaching you? And I, you know, I mean, I know your kids, so I know that they are remarkable people. I, I learned from your kids, but what are they teaching you? God, that's a hard question. It's funny. I think that my kids are teaching me to leave room for joy, and to make sure that in addition to strive, strive, perform, create, there also just has to be time for fun. And I think I knew that all along. I think I have lost the plot on that from time to time. And my kids always sort of come along and and remind me. Um, They've also taught me that it's an important job to be a parent. I, I don't know that I agree that you just get them to the point where they can like survive on their own and then you turn away. Uh, I feel like they've taught me I can have a profound influence on the people around me, that the way I ask a question, the tone in my voice when I ask it can cause radically different reactions. And, you know, you see that with adults, you get the real time feedback if you annoy someone or if you ask something the wrong way. But with a younger person who doesn't have the same shielding around their heart, you get incredible real-time feedback. If you say something hurtful to your child and it destroys them and you see it real-time, it's this incredible feedback loop to remind us of how powerful our words are, how powerful the look on our face can be, and just what an impact we're having not on them, but you extrapolate and you realize that you have an impact on everyone around you. And having very intimate relationships like that with people who are so open because they're your family are this incredible reminder of the the power and complexity of human relationships. Wow, I love that. And it reminds me of what you were saying about skydiving. And I remember this from being in the air, how such a tiny micro movement can turn your whole body. Um, And so it, it sort of goes back to that metaphor of skydiving, how so 
such a little thing can affect such a big response or reaction. And so I really appreciate what you're saying about understanding the power of our words. I, I think that that's really important thing for all of us to think about and remember. Isn't it great how the first thing you're taught in skydiving is how to be still? <laughs> yes. And I, I mean, I'd love you to speak about stillness because that actually came up in another podcast in one of our podcast interviews, uh, where we talked about how the greatest transformations happen in stillness. You think about, you know, the perfect example is a butterfly. You know, there's so much going on in that cocoon and yet from the outside, it looks like nothing's happening. And we are currently in this period of stillness, which no one has really taught us the importance of stillness. And I never really thought about it, uh, in terms of what you just said, but yes, that, that is the first lesson you learn in skydiving is how to maintain a stable body position so that you don't spin out. Um, so I, I'd love to hear what you think about stillness. Sure. I mean, it's interesting that you refer to this moment in time as one of stillness. I actually feel like we're anything, but I feel like we may be physically bound to our locations and quarantined in place to some extent. But I feel like we, as Americans, maybe the whole world, we've never been more agitated. Uh, the emotional agitation is as high as I can ever remember it. Families are, are you know, being ripped apart over political viewpoints. Uh, this country feels such a deep divide. Uh, I find it rare and rare to find people who are truly seeking to understand the perspectives of someone they're talking to as opposed to pursuing an agenda or trying to make a point or trying to convince the other person through various levels of argument or intimidation. So I feel like we're actually not at a point of stillness. But for me, when I think of stillness, one of my North Stars really is my father. Um, because, you know, my father, it's interesting, he had a life as a political activist. Many people remember him as a, as a, as a storyteller, a historian, um, a teacher, but he is also remembered as a political activist. He is quoted often, uh, you know, enjoining us to not be silent, but to speak out for what we believe, that the opposite of love is not hate, it's indifference. And yet in my father's personal life, in the way that he treated people, in the way he ran a household, in the way he interacted with students, there was an unbelievable stillness that for me defined him. Um, an unbelievable ability to take those who would come at him with anger or emotion and to somehow absorb it, contextualize it, not be swayed. Um, and, you know, in the home, uh, he had an amazing ability to let silence play a role. He believed in, you know, peace in the home uh, as, as one of the highest virtues. And if my mom was itching for a fight or if I was itching for a fight, my father didn't really want it. It would be very frustrating. But ultimately, his way would win because there would be no fight. And I, I mean, I, I have spent the past year doing my best to do something about the agitation. And my intention certainly has been to create a space for listening and, uh, and a space for unity. I don't know that I've succeeded, but I'd, I'd love for you to 
you know, you have this legacy of your father in your DNA, this, this space of stillness that, that he certainly modeled for you. And then, and then we both have this metaphor of, of stillness from skydiving. Do you have any thoughts about how, what we do with this agitation and how we might bring this agitation into some sort of stillness? The only model I can follow here is to take agitation and to turn it into productivity, into creativity. Um, you know, I don't write as much as I want to write, but it's often when something is banging around in my head, when there's just either something somebody said or something I read, something's just banging around in there and making me uncomfortable or making me feel like I disagree or making me feel like I agree, but... Um, you know, those are the moments, like when, when that internal monologue just gets super duper chatty and just won't stop. I think the message for me, and I don't know if this is right for everyone, but it's how I, I deal with it. That to me is the signal that I'm supposed to sit down and like start getting it out on paper. Um, and, you know, my son, when, when he gets a little bit stressed and agitated, he picks up the electric guitar. You know, my daughter is more inclined to go sing. But for me, when I, when I have that... Um, when I have something buzzing around in my head like that, that's usually my signal that I've got to get something out on paper. And maybe it's just like, you know, maybe it's just some journaling and it's just this little turd that my consciousness needed to produce before it could feel better and move on. And that's just where it sits before I, you know, either uh, flush it down into the trash or, or, you know, or just leave it where it is unattended. I don't like that image, actually. That's terrible that I would <laughs> leave it just there unattended. But I mean, gosh, my, my file directory is a little bit like that. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but sometimes there's something that I actually wanted to say mm-hmm. in response. And then it's something that I can share with people who I enjoy talking to or, or enjoy developing ideas with. So I don't know. My, my overall encouragement is when, when I get agitated, that's usually a sign for me to sit down and write. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think that that is a great point. I keep there is a book called Burnout by Emily and Amelia uh, Nagoski. And they talk about how emotions have a beginning, middle, middle, and an end, and how they have to be seen through to their end. And one of the ways that that they teach in their book that you can work an emotion through to its end is creative expression. And um, so I love that you talk about the notion of using writing or your son using the guitar, or your daughter using singing to work through an, agit- an agitation to its other side. Yeah, I mean, in some sense, it should be viewed as an opportunity, right? It's if you never felt, if none of us ever felt agitated, would we ever, you know, come up with something meaningful to say? Um, agitation is a sign that someone or something has reached us, and that means that we have an opportunity to digest it and and do something with it. And I, I also have spent, you know, I mean, I have spent a lot of time this year thinking about, you know, your father's quote about, we must always take sides and neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. And I have, I have been criticized by people in my life for not being outraged enough about certain behaviors or, you know, certain choices that, various different administrations have made. And yet I I keep sort of chewing on this notion of 
finding creative responses um, and what does that look like? And I, I thought that maybe, you know, because your dad was a, um, an activist as well as, a, you know, a really brilliant writer, what can we do from a creative perspective right now? I, I think about choices like Martin Luther King on the on the bridge in Selma, or I think about Gandhi who decided during the salt tax that that they were going to make their own salt. And I, and I feel like there are ways in which we could be way more creative uh, in in how we address the things we're unhappy about. I mean, I don't know. How about getting, you know, several dozen or a hundred people out onto a big lawn, you know, filmed by a camera, just showing that we can come together across political stripes. I wish someone would do that. <laughs> You're talking about the Unity Project. Thank you. I thought that was so cool. I really did. Um, look, I think I, the way I see it, and, and there are those who would disagree with me, and they're certainly entitled to it, There's, we all have a, a, an ability to contribute to political dialogue and to be activists and to stand up for causes that we support. And obviously that's a critical part of what it means to be a citizen in this country. And that's the leadership we need to model for our kids. But there's also the leadership that we get to display every single day on the canvas that is our personal lives. And not just our personal lives, the people we encounter every day. I don't know, is it more important to bring a sign to a march and scream loudly for what we believe in than it is to... Um, you know, treat people well and with curiosity and actually have the bandwidth available in our mind that when we ask someone how they are, we actually have the time to listen and maybe ask a follow-up question and maybe learn something from what they said and have that conversation go somewhere else. Uh, and I'm not saying it has to be one or the other, but when I think about my father's legacy in this particular regard of, you know, what it means to be creative in response to... Um, to a need for change. I think that political change is important, but not at the expense of dialogue. And dialogue means sometimes talking to people that you disagree with, maybe even in fundamental ways. It means dialogue on issues that might not mean so much to you and having the opportunity to then explain something about an issue that does mean something to you. So for me, when I look at the, you know, the quote you mentioned, on you know that that effectively is is exhorting us to um, to speak up and and as you say your friends want you to be outraged about certain things. Look, my father didn't walk around outraged twenty four hours out of the day. He expressed outrage when it was appropriate. He found ways to do it that was that were civilized. Um, he did it with no less passion for being civil. And at the other end, he expressed his creativity and his values simply in the way he lived his life when he wasn't protesting. And I think that there has been a push in this country with such incredible political division that people's personas away from the protest are too similar to their personas at the protest. We can't all be yelling 24 hours a day. So we need more listening is what I hear you saying. We need more listening, and we also, yeah, I guess, I guess. I don't know that I can boil it down to just one thing, but yes, listening. And um, I would say we need to extend the benefit of the doubt a little more, and some people really hate that. 
how could you possibly extend the benefit of the doubt to someone who voted for Trump? How could you possibly extend the benefit of the doubt to, to someone who's supporting that man doing the evil things he does? And I've heard it on the other end. Remember, I come from a very big Zionist community. Um, not everyone in the Jewish community feels the way uh, I do or those you know, that I know do. But for many, there, are, you know, there were many saying, how can you not support Trump? How can you not support someone who, you know, finally is is uh, standing up appropriately for Israel as our ally in the Middle East? And it's a complex topic. I I I, I get to experience it very directly because, you know, American Jewry is as split down the middle um, as the country is. Well, maybe not because I think it's like seventy five twenty five as opposed to fifty three forty seven. But the intensity and the passion is extremely hard. Uh, is extremely high on both sides. But, you know, what I what I love and what I uh, read in your piece in the forward um, was that your dad had some pretty hard conversations. Uh, I mean, he sat down with Holocaust deniers and had civilized conversations. So what do you think we if we are going to venture into that territory of having these hard conversations and giving people the benefit of the doubt? Um, what could we learn from from the way your dad sat down and and talked to people? I think that we have an obligation, if we want to be constructive, to move past anger at some point, because anger is appropriate in some channels, but it is not constructive in others. And my father could have chosen to be so angry about the fact that Mahmoud Abbas had denied the Holocaust, that he refused to engage with him, or he could have pursued um, an opportunity for peace by bringing him together with Israeli Prime Minister Olmert. And you have to weigh these things. You have to weigh, if I'm yelling and shouting, am I doing it because I really think I'm going to convince anyone or make a change, or am I doing it to make myself feel better? And if what I'm really after is a way to make myself feel better, is there a way to achieve that and then find something else to do to achieve the objective I actually want to achieve objective, uh, politically? Yeah, I think that that's a really important point. And, you know, we were talking about what our kids are here to teach us. And, you know, my son teaches me so much about uh, what's important, what's not important, um, joy, laughter, can I tell um, the story about him in the bathtub at the hotel? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Go ahead. Tell limit. <laughs> no, no, no. I think it's a great story. Uh, oh, my tell God. Him. Joe, what an amazing guy. Um, I don't know. He must have been, was he like young teen at this point? We were visiting you out in California. I think he was a tween, you know, maybe 10 or something. My kids were super young. I remember that. We were yeah. visiting you out in California, and we were um, at Shutters on the Beach, I think, out, uh, out at the pier, the Santa Monica Pier. And I think we'd walked back to our hotel room. We just all needed a break. You know, my kids needed a nap, whatever they needed. And uh, Joe was like, holy crap, there's like a TV in your bathroom. He couldn't get over it. And um, he's like, could I take a bath? And we're like, yeah. So like, you know, there he is. He's just like, you know, he, he's, he's hanging out in the bath, you know, the bubble bath, watching the TV. Can we get you a drink? Like just so happy, just like, you know, uh, fully himself. And um, it was just an amazing moment. Uh, I love that you told that story because 
I, I mean, and Joe loves to eat in the bath. I'm sure he probably asked for something from the mini bar, knowing him, yeah. like regardless. <laughs> and, um, and, but that goes back to that, um, you know, that skydiving thing of, you know, you jump out of the plane and it's like, we're, de- we're constantly debating whether we are going to be afraid or take the leap. But then there is also what you do when you jump out of the plane, um, like, are you going to somersault? I remember, I remember doing these crazy dives with you where you kind mm-hmm. of put your arms back and, yep. you know, you, swooping. um, swooping. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I love that you told that story about Joe, because, you know, a lot of parents and or kids would have felt too afraid to ask. And, you know, when faced with a bathtub, that's really beautiful with a TV, like who doesn't want to take a bath? It's so amazing. So I just want to ask you one last question, but in in this idea of our, you know, our children teaching us, what do you think you taught your father? Gosh, I'm sure I taught my father something about patience because boy, did I test his patience. So if he had patience before then, I'm sure it was uh, tested and developed well by having me as a son. I think that I lived a life at some point as a teenager, consistent with that model of pursuing joy. And my father was always fearful for me, fearful that my desire for endorphins and my desire to satiate my curiosity and my desire to go experience this big, full, over-brimming life would get me into trouble because he was older and older people are able to see dangers that younger people can't see. And I think at some point he began to trust me and he was able to have that moment as a parent where he realized that I was being who I needed to be and that he might not agree with the decisions I was making, but that they were my decisions and his love for me would transcend his concern. And he told me, it's interesting, we had a conversation once, I must have been in my young 20s, and, you know, he was always chiding me, stop skydiving, stop doing this. You know, uh, you know it w- he would ask me, if I skydived, would you be willing to stop? Um, and uh, there was this one conversation where we had in, in my 20s where he told me about one of the only times he did about his dreams. And he said, you know, I had this extraordinary dream, Elijah, that, uh, Alicia, that there were, um, that our house was being attacked and the bad people were coming with guns to come and get us. And you were right next to me, and you said it's going to be okay, and I knew it would be. And what did you make of that? I guess I made out of it that I had gone from being a concern for him to being a relief. And do you think that message is true now? Do you think we're going to be okay? I do think we're going to be okay. I do, too. Alicia, thank you so much for being here with us today. Michelle, I love talking to you. I'm happy to do it even when we're not in a podcast. In fact, I think my life needs more of it. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I look forward to when we can do more of it too. The When Is Now is co-hosted by Michelle Fiordaliso and Zora Alunga reed It's produced in Los Angeles, California by Jack Zager. The next 21-day coaching program begins on January 11th. 
Use it to find your purpose in our changing world by signing up on thewhenisnow.com. You'll also find complete podcast show notes there. Thank you for listening. And remember, the when is now.